Welcome to the Business Developers Network, where today's leading business developers share and learn innovative business development concepts to generate greater value for their businesses. Hosted by Artie Ruderman, Principal of Innovative Growth Solutions. Broadcasting live from the Pro Business Channel studios in Atlanta and worldwide across the PBC syndicated networks. This episode made possible in part by Innovative Growth Solutions. For more info, visit igscorp.net. And now please welcome your host of the Business Developers Network, Artie Ruderman. Hello and welcome. This is the Business Developers Network, and we are delighted today to have Jack Portman, who is the chairman for John Portman Associates, the renowned architectural engineering firm and chairman of Portman International, which is a property development company where Jack is responsible for international development activities of the company. Jack began his career in 1973. He was an apprentice architect for Portman Associates, at that time a family business. Uh, Recognizing the tremendous potential in the Pacific Rim, Jack is established Portman Overseas to pursue international real estate development and management overseas projects. Jack lived extensively in the Eastern Asia. He lived in Hong Kong for three years in 79 to 82, and then in China for in Shanghai. Shanghai, thank you, for another three years in the early 90s. Mm-hmm. In 1980, he pioneered Portman's entry into China, laying the groundwork for design and development of Shanghai Center, which at the time, and probably is still up there, the largest foreign investment in China, a coalition he built with American, Japanese, and Chinese investors. And remember, this was at a time that China was um, at just beginning to open up its, its borders, commercially speaking. It was an overwhelming success, and I'm sure it was challenging uh, during political climate and change within the country, and we'll drill down on that a little bit. In 1998, Jack came back to Atlanta to oversee operations of Portman and continues the firm expansion globally with projects in India, which is relatively new. Ten years. Mm -hmm. Ten years, that's all right. And renewed the firm's commitment to the local community and within the United States. Jack, my first introduction to Portman Associates Design goes back to the early 80s in San Francisco Embarcadero Center. I had no idea that I was going to meet you at that time, but it was something so unique that I felt it personally, which is what Portman is all about. But Portman is about design. It's about community. It's about personal sensory experiences. I didn't know all of that then, but I felt all of that then. And that basically became the trademark of all the projects for Portman. It's been described as neo-futuristics trademark with storied interior atria in the hotels and office buildings. How would you describe Portman's trademark design? I think, first of all, the design is focused on what are the, the needs of the people who use it. So you're thinking from the point of view of the user, not necessarily from outside looking at the project, what it might look like, how how it might appear physically. You figure out what the functions are and what the people need and how to make that experience for the people who use it more enjoyable, more memorable, more warm, more exciting, more serene. So you're playing with all of the senses of the people who are using the space. And for for Portman, it's not necessarily about designing one building. 
but it's about designing a community of buildings, which were really referred to mixed-use development. So Embarcadero Center is a very good example of mixed-use development because next to it was the Alcoa housing project. So the housing was there. So Embarcadero Center became a 3 million square foot mixed-use with office and retail hotels. At, at that time, uh, how unique was the creating that unique mixed-use community center? The very first one was in Rockefeller Center, you know, back in the 30s. That ah. was the first one. But mm-hmm. my father began Peachtree Center in Atlanta in 19... 19- 58, 1960. Barcadero Center was began in about 1968. And that was uh, the second? That was, that was, I mean, there were mixed-use centers of various sizes around the country, but none of real significance, none of architectural significance like in Barcadero Center became. What I'm particularly interested in is uh, Portman is, is wonderful design. It's known for its design, but you were able, or your, your, your dad at the time was able to take that architectural firm and build it into an international business. Business, which you were very much part of. And it's that business side that I'm interested in talking to you and reading about you. It was applying the design is one thing, and, and it's very difficult for architects to get hired. But yet you had a very innovative and creative business approach, and it's the business approach that we're going to be talking about today. So can you describe that a little bit? Architecture is a creative process. And more often than not, the creative process undertaken by the architect is so overwhelming that sometimes the practical, common sense application of how do you build it is put to the side. Whereas my father bring left brain, right brain combination was able to figure out how to undergo the creative process, but do so in a way that made economic sense. So he decided to Put the money where people could touch it and see it, you know, not necessarily clad a 60-story building in granite because that wasn't any benefit to the person that's using it, but put it more in the public space. You know, I kind of skipped my usual intro. I always like to know a little bit more about my guest on a personal or our listeners to know a little bit more about our guest. So I'm going to go to some personal side. And uh, after graduating college, which was in the early 70s, you embarked on on a global journey. And you went to Asia, which is interesting, but that was a time that uh, there was a long, drawn-out war in Vietnam. What was that like, being an American in Asia at that time? Well, the, the global journey, to use your term, really began after my freshman year in college. Every summer of every year I was in college, I went to my father with a plan of where I wanted to go, what I wanted to see, and what I expected to learn. And Fascinating. Because I put a lot of thought into it, and I knew that as long as it was worthwhile and educational, he would support it. You know, every year I, I went somewhere. I lived in Paris one year. You know, I went around the world one year. I went through Europe one year. So by the time I graduated from college, you know, I even went to South America one summer. So I'd seen a lot of the world. And in Asia, you developed an, an affinity for it. You described it as being peace, as if you were almost home. What, what were those sensory connections that you had? Well, my initial impact was in being in Hong Kong for the first time. It was overwhelming from two different almost contradictory perspectives. One, it was dynamic and exciting, visually one of the most extraordinarily beautiful places I'd ever seen. The activity was intense. The pace of life was, you know, fast as it could be, but yet there was a sort of serenity in that hectic pace that was intoxicating. And I decided in 1969, I'm going to live here one day. Amazing. And given that you visited all of the Pacific Rim countries, how did you adapt to the, the rituals, the culture, the, the formalities of each country, which was different? I think a secret to doing that is just to listen. You know, sometimes people want to 
pontificate. They want to talk. They want to sell themselves. And in, in that process, occasionally your ears are not working very well. And therefore, you're putting across who you are rather than trying to understand who they are. So I just developed an interest in trying to learn as much as I could about the people I was dealing with, their customs and culture, because it was new to me. It was different to me. And therefore, it was very interesting. And I wanted to learn more about it. So it became just just listening and trying to understand their perspective. And then with that understanding, express myself in a way which made sense to them in the context of their understanding. That's an interesting point that you bring out commercially about understanding when you're dealing with your clients, which are developers, is knowing the language. And I'm going to come back to that because there's a different interpretation of understanding the language, but it really Mm -hmm. follows the same theme that you had as a young man. But speaking about language, you learned Chinese. Well, in the early 90s, we were going through some very tough economic times and there was no growth taking place. And I'm uh, more on the growth side. So I took five or six months off and I moved to Taiwan and I went to Dashui in Taipei and studied Chinese. And it was a fascinating experience because it was an all day thing, you know, very intense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got to where I could read seven, eight hundred characters. And oh, I, my I gosh. Could, I 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 could, so, you know, I can speak pretty much what I want to say. It may not sound very articulate, but I can get the point across. However, my brain doesn't quite work fast enough to download the language coming back. But that must have been very helpful as you moved into the commercial side of, of understanding the languages. Well, it was helpful in being able to communicate to people. Mm-hmm. Even though I didn't necessarily do it in business, you know, on a social level, and there's a lot of, you know, banquets and things like that, where even every once in a while just making some expression, expressing yourself in their language is always welcome. We're going to move into you basically having this vision, as you said, gee, I like living here. And then you connected bringing the family business to the Asian market, which is making that vision a reality. You're a young man. You're already a schooled architect. I would say you're a journeyman at that particular time. But Portman, uh, John Portman Associates is already at this point a very established large company with a board and, and investors. So it's not like going to dad and saying, hey, dad, I have this great idea. Uh, there's an old salesman's joke that a salesman has to sell twice, once to the client and then convince the company that it's a, a good deal. So how did you navigate this concept of I want to invest in China or the South? East Asia? Well, first of all, the company wasn't as you described. It was never really run by a board. It was always run by my father and my father only. So ah. I, re- I really only had to sell him. <laughs> and the first time I tried to sell him on China in 1978, he didn't go for it. And so I had to travel there back and forth and then get some business before it could justify me moving there. So you did run it by your dad, the, the concept? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was said, hey, this makes sense. He understood it at that time? Well, once I obtained some, some work, mm-hmm. which could pay for it, ah. it was easier to digest. Ah. How did you bring that deal or the beginnings of a deal? In other words, it, the concept that, hey, this is going to work, <laughs> you actually had to reach out to the community, to investors, and 
establish that and then bring something of a concept more concrete to your dad at that time? Well, China in those days was closed. It had been closed my whole life. When it went communist in 49, you know, Americans really weren't welcome there. In fact, Americans weren't allowed to go there until 1979, at least not officially. So you have, because it's it's forbidden, you know, because it's uh, so different culturally from, from what I knew, it made it very intriguing. It made it very mysterious. You know, and to be shanghai you know, as a phrase meant you got carted off and taken away against your will. So all, all of this created this enigmatic, you know, adventure in my mind. So I was predisposed to want to break that barrier. How did you get investors to to buy into this concept, given the challenges that you just put out there? Well, it took four years to get the government to agree to let us do what we wanted to do, because we had a big ambition. It was about two million square foot mixed-use development. And but we, it took during these four years, we had the mayor, the party secretary, a lot of the vice mayors come to the states. They came to Atlanta. We went with them to San Francisco, Los Angeles, and New York, showing them the things that we had done. Because there was a lot of people going through China at that time that were referred to as suitcase company. People who would come in with all these pretty pictures of things, purporting to have done this and that in order to gain entry and get access to certain projects. So they were very skeptical about foreigners. And so I was able to persuade them to come come look, come see for yourself. And that not only established our real credibility, but it created a basis for a relationship between us and the governmental people so that they had confidence in us and, and trusted us to do what we said we would do. So there, there's a lot of players that have to go into an, an investment of a, a development like property development like that. So you have to have the the government on board, right? You need to have the investors on board and, and have them kind of connect and trust each other as well. Mm. Your capability about doing the design, the management side is something I would like to talk about because now you're dealing with a labor force, a whole different culture, and I'm interested in that as well. But let's talk about how did the investors, when you first brought them and say, hey, I'd like you to invest $100 million in a project in China at this particular time. Well, it was it was hard because it, <laughs> there was no rule of law. There was no title to land. My heavens. So it became corporate debt. So first of all, I had to convince the Chinese government to let us do it, to let us have the land and negotiate that deal. With that deal, I then immediately went to Shiochi Kajima, who was the chairman of Kajima Construction out of Japan, with whom we had had an association in a hotel in Singapore. Uh They were the contractor and the investor with the local Singaporean developer, Pontiac Land. So I got to know Mr. Kajima then. And when I was able to obtain this contract in China, the first thing I did was go see him and ask him if he would join me, he would be my contractor, and if he would invest in the project. And he did. And I then went to AIG, Hank Greenberg. You know, AIG started in Shanghai in 1919. And therefore, they had a more intimate knowledge and a more of an interest in going back to China. So Hank Greenberg made the personal decision that they would invest in this project in order to go back to Shanghai. So it was from AIG and Kojima that I really arranged the equity. Then I had to arrange the debt. And we got 18 different banks from eight different countries to create a consortium that made up the bank debt. Hmm. So did, did But co- also the key thing is I was able to get the Bank of China to guarantee 70% of the debt. Wow. And the reason they did this was to prime the pump because there was a lack of security for any debt. And they realized this. And in order Mm -hmm. to get the development process going, they agreed to 
to guarantee 70% of the debt. And then AIG, Portman, and Kojima guaranteed the other 30%, which made it a 100% guaranteed loan, which made it somewhat less risky for the in, for the bankers. Had Kojima at that time already established a, a relationship in China? No. Wow. No one had. Wow. I mean, no yeah. one had. This was trailblazing stuff. <laughs> you know, yeah, we, that's we, just... were, we were the first. In fact, we were the first joint venture contract of this sort that was done because I saw from in later experiences that this contract, the same one we had, was used as the format for other cities to do other deals. Jack, mo- most companies, especially sizable investments that they're going to make, do extensive research data and algorithms and analytics. <laughs> what did you apply at the time to say, hey, this is a good idea? There was no data <laughs> to acquire this sort of information. We had to do a market study mm-hmm. you know, for the hotel. But there was, there was no hotel information. So Portman, we did it ourselves. And we explained to the banks, we have to do it ourselves. Nobody has the experience to do it. And this is how we did it. And we went to talk to various government agencies. How many planes are coming in? How many seats are coming in? How many people are arriving every day? How many hotels are there? And we kind of did our own market study mm-hmm. and footnoted it exactly how we did it and gave this information to the bank. And we assumed we could get $100 a night for the rate. And with that number, you know, everything worked out. And in reality, we got much more than that. That 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 is amazing. But now let's talk about but, the... You, the, the key thing here is that at this time in the early 80s, all of a sudden people realized the potential that could be had by being in China and everyone wanted to be there. So this project with all these lenders was a way they could come in for 10 or $15 million, so limit their risk, but mm. at least then have some exposure and some experience of beginning business in this vast market. So it was a matter of good karma or good timing? Good timing. Hmm. Now, how, how did, just go back to the design side, because that how did Portman, which is known for creating this sensitivity to a personal experience and to a community, how did Portman adjust to... To the Chinese culture in Shanghai. How were you able to interpret that? How were you able to understand that and translate that? Well, from a design point of view, it's always best to focus on the origins of the indigenous culture and let whatever creative process you go through, use that as the, the priming pump so that it becomes more of the place that you're designing for rather than of your imagination. The last thing we wanted to do was take an American building and stick it in Shanghai. So, you know, we did try to figure out how to fit this building in its context in a way that was harmonious to the existing conditions, realizing that those existing conditions would change because the scale of things in 1980 completely different than they're going to be in the year 2000. At that time, uh, there were some Portman projects in in Hong Kong and in Japan and Singapore, but not in China, correct? No. So who in in Portman had that that antenna, if you will? You were there and you were an architect. How much input did you have on that design? Does that flair run in the family? It does, yeah. (laughs) Okay, so you you had a lot of input then, I, I assume. Being able to design these projects Mm -hmm. is the primary motivation of it all. If it takes figuring out how to finance it, figuring out how to program it, figuring out how to convince the government to let you do it, it's all in order to have the opportunity 
through your own creative you know, initiative to come up with a building and a project that makes it a better place for people to live. Now, that's the primary motivation. But at the same time, if this project is not feasible, if this project is not economically viable, then nobody's going to invest money to make it happen. You have to figure out how to make it financially viable at the same time fulfilling your primary desire, which is to create a meaningful environment. I, I heard you explain that architects design, but there needs to be a sensitivity to the owners and the developers on what they can afford and to somewhere or another have a, a meeting of the minds of the design being the function and having that flair to fulfill the needs of the owners. So talking to developers, how do you go about that meetings of the minds that, no, we don't want granite. We're going to use, as you said, cement, and that's going to be architecturally appealing. Well, it's on a case-by-case basis, but being developers ourselves, we understand the thought process that another developer is going to go through. So we're not having to be schooled or spoon-fed what is important to them. And this is one of the attractions to hiring Portman as an architect in China is that we do have this sensitivity Mm. to the economic viability of the project as well well as the creative part. That, I can see that. that. That's a definite advantage. And, you know, I, I didn't... Whereas in this country, early on, my father didn't want to do any design for any other developer. But then eventually, the other developers didn't want Portman Design because perhaps the Portman name was bigger than their name, and they didn't want to be overshadowed, or they didn't want to share any of publicity success. But I, I would think that the name would be a, a brand that would attract and investors and that knowing the success of all the development properties that you have had. And by the way, I, I didn't really properly introduce Portman, John Portman Associates and, and Portman International as being architects, a renowned world architects and uh, developers and providing service and, and investment for companies. So I would think that that would be an attraction that, gee, I'm, I'm a developer. People don't know me, but they know Portman and they know the success of your projects. Probably going to speak well if I put Portman's name attached to my project. And, and that is the case. And we often get requests to have the name attached to the projects that we design for others in China. But it takes a very self-confident, accomplished developer to have the the mindset to realize that that addition of that name is going to be of a benefit rather than of competition to their own name. Gosh, it doesn't seem that um, difficult to understand that myself. Nor to me, but... (laughs) (laughs) You know, speaking about that, when Portman designs a a project in a center like Peachtree Center or Shanghai Center, what about the area around it that you know is going to grow in value, right? And is there any way that uh, uh, Portman can benefit from that without direct investment in in developing that? Or do you get involved in, in developing the outer banks of your projects? What happens is exactly as you described. When we do a project like Embarcadero, the land around there becomes much more valuable. But it's impossible for us to try to acquire and hold that land to benefit in the future because it takes upfront capital, Mm -hmm. which we Mm -hmm. are better off dispensing elsewhere to initiate new developments. Uh, However, there are, my father said there's some developers who told him, wherever you go, I'm going to buy land next to you. Because <laughs> I know it'll go up. I could understand that. But in Atlanta, in Peachtree Center, that development was done piecemeal, block by block. Now, there were some lot blocks where my father was able to obtain a long-term lease, and therefore you didn't necessarily have to come up with the money for it. But you, your, your lease income then was paid by the parking you could put on the site. Huh. So that was a way to warehouse the land. Whereas in, in Barcadero or you know, in Singapore, in Marina Square, 
those big pieces of land were auctioned off by the government. And in both cases, we were in consortiums which won that because we combined all the land together into one mixed-use development. Even though we paid or offered to pay less per square foot than people who were willing to buy one block only, government, in their foresight, saw that having the development that we were proposing would be better for the evolution of the growth of the city in in a beneficial way. And so we were awarded those projects. And... They were right in their their assumption because both of those projects were catalysts for the areas in which they were in. Going back to the Shanghai Center, which was the first major project that you did, talk about the, the challenges from the, the politics. We talked about the, the financing. The labor, I guess, was from out of the Japan, the company. I'm sorry, I can't recall that. Kojima. Thank you, but Kojima. They were, they were the management only. They had some supervisory staff, but all the labor was done by one of the Shanghai construction companies working under Kojima, somewhat as a construction manager. And how was that different from projects that you've worked before? And in what way was that more challenging or maybe it wasn't? Whenever you blend two or three cultures together to try to do something. I bet. It's always more difficult uh, just because you've got to be sensitive to the needs and requirements of everybody at the table. But if everybody's open and, and straightforward, can avoid problems. And China is also, even today, a little bit of the wild, wild west as far as its business ethics are concerned. And I imagine that Portman had to deal with that just like many other companies have to deal with talking about your intellectual property. Have you ever had issues like that? Yes. We've, we've had people use the Portman name in other places in China without our permission. And, oh my! And you know that that was hard in the beginning to stop. It's easier now because we have trademark rights. But real estate is a very risky business, and risky business attracts people that are like to take risk. And sometimes the way they go about doing business may be a little less than conventional. So the challenges are how do you adapt to different ways of people doing business in a way that doesn't compromise how you do business. And that's done on a case-by-case basis. Have you ever had a design replicated, shall we say? Uh, yes. But see, you know, it's hard to copyright architectural design, just like it's hard to copyright furniture design. All you got to do is change it just a little bit. Mm. It's not the same. So, you know, the mixed-use development of Shanghai Center, from a conceptual point of view, has been utilized, you know, many, many times in many places. And so, in a way, that's flattering. And they do it, they get an architect to do it a lot cheaper. So, but all in all, you would say that the experience of of working in China, and by the way, we could move from China, we we really covered that, but you would say all in all, it's a profitable experience. Yeah, very much so. What other projects, which projects would Portman be the most proud of? You could always say the next one. (laughs) Or you could say all. (laughs) They're like children, you know. Each has their own individual characteristics, and there's things that you like about each of them that may be different than the others. So it's hard to compare, you know, who do you like the most or which one is the best. All right. We, I, I literally can go on for another hour. I thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope our listeners did. I hope you, you did, Jack. Just to be sure, is there anything that you would like to cover or to add? Any comments? No, thank you. All right. And with that, thank you for contact information. Just, just go to WW Portman USA if anyone's mm-hmm. interested in, in your company. So with that, uh, this is Artie Runeman signing off and reminding you to keep developing your business. 
On behalf of the Pro Business Channel Networks, we want to thank our guests, sponsors, and you, the audience, for joining us on the Business Developers Network. This episode made possible in part by Innovative Growth Solutions. For more info, visit igscorp.net. Today's broadcast can be heard on demand on your favorite internet channels, including iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Play, and across the PBC syndicated networks. We invite you to share the show using the posted social media links and join Artie Ruderman and his guests on the next episode of the Business Developers Network.